politics Some culture and craft beer Politics And that is why you're here Politics Bottoms up Welcome back to Bottoms Up. This is Blotto, and I know it's been a couple of weeks perhaps, but I've been super busy, but I knew that I had to get in here and give some of the opinions that I have about some of the things that are happening in the world today because they're just really grinding at me, and hopefully you appreciate it. Before I do, uh, it's always time for the beer, and this week I have the Keweenaw Brewing Company's Pickaxe Blonde Ale. I'm a fan of Keweenaw Brewing, mainly because their Widowmaker is one of my go-to beers all day, every day. And I think I've had a couple others that I really enjoy from them. And maybe also because it's uh, located very near the same town that my son goes to school. And, you know, there's some strange affiliation with that because it is way up in the hinterlands of the northern upper peninsula of Michigan, very close to the Arctic Circle. Anyway, not a whole lot of information on the can. Uh, they call it a blonde ale, slightly malty American blonde ale. Um, they did put the ABV on the can. I had to look that up. It's 4.9. So that makes it a pretty good session beer. And also the IBUs were not listed. My assumption is probably very low. It's pouring very nicely. A nice one-inch thick foam head on it. Um, that's going to settle in. Obviously very blonde. Um, seems like a light beer. I'm not sure that I'll really detect the difference between a blonde ale and a pilsner or a lager for that matter. Um, maybe the maltiness will uh, jump out at me a little bit more. Let me take a, take a first uh, whiff here. Smells like beer. Very refreshing. Very mild. Easy to drink. I could see this also being in the beer fridge as uh, sort of an everyday beer. Um, there is a little bit on the back end. There is a bitterness. So it's not as clean as a Pilsner or a lager. I got to say that. I, I might have to come back to it at the uh, end of the cast and see if I still feel the same way about it. But I'm sure I'm going to finish it or at least drink most of it during the uh during the 30 or 40 minutes that we have here together. Except for I find myself talking so much, I oftentimes don't ever get around to the drinking part. Uh, well, let's start off with President Joe Biden. He's still president. And that's really all there is about to say. I, I mean, you know, we want Joe to be boring, and I think that by and large, he is. Now, maybe there's so many other, you know, shitstorms that are happening in the news right now that aren't based out of Washington, D.C., that he's getting a pass. But I don't think so. I don't think there's just a ton to talk about with, with Joe Biden. You know, I think overall, the people that voted for him got to be pretty happy because he's doing or trying to do a lot of the things that he said he was going to do, one of which are his EOs on uh, gun control. And we'll talk about that a little bit because it really ties into the main topic that I wanted to bring up as well as that is the main topic throughout the country right now. Uh, today uh, marks the, the prosecutor's 
closing case in the George Floyd murder trial of Officer uh, Chauvin. And I don't know if you've watched any of it. I've watched a fair amount. I haven't, you know, been glued to it. Um, it's on in the background, and I, I, I'll catch some of the witnesses. And I, I've really been kind of fascinated by the defense attorney and their tactics. You know, maybe it was the video, maybe it's common sense, but this really is a fairly open and shut case, in my opinion. I, I mean, Officer Chauvin used excessive force, excessive deadly force with uh, callous and malicious intent towards George Floyd, his victim. And the evidence is bearing that out as well, not just the video evidence, but all of the evidence about what is proper police procedure in detaining someone, as well as the medical evidence that in an overwhelming sense is trying to tell the world that it wasn't the methamphetamines that was in the system. It wasn't that he smoked pot. It wasn't that he had a minor heart condition, which I don't think he did, but they might have insinuated that. It wasn't any of those things. He died because his oxygen was cut off to his brain, and uh, that's what killed him, which is what kills most people when you come right down to it, except for it's just usually not an officer that's standing on your neck when, when that happens. Um, but ultimately, most causes of death are because you're no longer getting oxygen to to your organs and particularly to your to your brain. And the evidence is really quite overwhelming as I said. And it does have to play out in the court of law and you know Chauvin de deserves his his due process. It, it's interesting to watch his defense. Uh, I don't know the name of his defense attorney, but I'm fascinated by how often he's able to position a question only in the terms of sort of a basic yes or no answer. Now, these are, of course, the prosecution witnesses that have gone first. And so they have a lot to say regarding the, pros uh, the prosecution in terms of, I don't believe, and this is what the evidence shows, and this is what, you know, tactics that are authorized, or this is the way police should act, or this is what the medical community says, and all of those kinds of things. And then there's victim statements in there too, which have been very fascinating. But when the defense gets up there, all the defense wants to really keep hammering on is this idea that things are plausible, right? That's how I guess you you get to um, the notion of a reasonable doubt, right? You know, he might say to the medical profession, but you could see in some instances that it would be possible for someone that has a rush of adrenaline plus methamphetamine use could possibly die of a heart attack in those circumstances. And and so then, you know, kind of forcing the witness to say, yes, maybe, I suppose, in the realm of possibility that is that could happen. And some of the witnesses just answer yes or no. You know, would you agree that it's possible that this could happen? And almost all those questions were yes or no questions. And I've tried to do yes or no questions before, and I find it very difficult. Like, I want to draw out comments from people and kind of get into their brain a little bit, especially on the political realm when I have conversations with whoever. 
And, you know, yes or no questions, I, I, I don't know if there's a place for them in more general discourse, but it, it's almost gotten to the point where it's fascinated me, but frustrated me uh, to no end when I watch this uh, defense attorney. Now, tomorrow, they start bringing up their witnesses. And I wonder if it's going to be the same tactic. Is he going to ask a lot of yes, no questions, or is he going to ask questions that are going to, you know, lead the witness to expand upon what their area of expertise is in relation to the case? And then what will the prosecution cross-examination be like? And will they go to the yes or no questions? Um, but I think that the, the evidence is such that we know why George Floyd died, and I think that the defense is going to have to continue on with that line of questioning, and the prosecution is going to be able to get people to talk a little bit more. I don't know, you know who they plan on calling. I guess I haven't heard whether it's completely decided or not, whether um, the officer was going to take the stand. That's usually a, a desperate move by the defense. I wouldn't expect it, and it does lean towards the idea that they're losing the case, but they might win. And and we know they might win. Uh, it's difficult to get a conviction on a police officer in this country. I, I guess if I had to call it right now, I'm going to say hung jury. And I think that there's going to be a couple of people in that jury that don't want to send Chauvin into prison for the rest of his life. I, I don't know, you know what that means. Of course, there's going to be a retrial, and does it make it less or more likely? But I, I, I kind of feel like it's so difficult to get convictions uh, on police officers that we're looking at a hung jury. It'll play out, and we'll find out soon enough. It will be very interesting to see if there, if there's a longer deliberation by the jury. I, I think that's also going to be really, you know, sort of fascinating. And I guess in all of these high-profile, you know, legal cases starting with OJ and, you know, carrying through right through, you know, the George Floyd uh, trial, you know, it's always those kinds of same questions that, that, that come up. But now in the backdrop of the George Floyd case, you've got two other incidents that have come into the public spectrum. And literally one is the backdrop of the George Floyd trial. Like it's right there in Minnesota, Minneapolis. And that is the shooting of a 20-year-old young black man who was pulled over for a traffic stop, Duante Wright. I'm not sure. I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm getting his first name right. This case is completely fascinating, and it does tie into the George Floyd case. And I'll also speak about the Karen Nazario case and how all of these things are related and the problems that we have in the U.S., both from systemic racism that is within our law enforcement, whether they even know it or not, and two, how it relates to our gun problem and the lack of gun control that we have in the U.S. In the... Uh, Right case, uh, here's a young man who got pulled over, I think, for expired tabs, they said. Then he had something hanging from his rearview mirror. You know, it just it just always begs the question to me, 
what if he'd been pulled over if he was white? You know, I, maybe on expired tabs, you you would. I mean, I suppose in my youth, I, I was. And then do they want to harass somebody for having something dangling from the mirror? But in either case, they pull him over and and then uh, they find out that he has an outstanding warrant. And uh, the warrant was for, I think they called it a gross misdemeanor, uh, but they're not really saying what that was. His family is saying that he wasn't aware that he had this warrant out, so details of that. But what really, what really matters here is what kind of took place and how the police handled the situation. Because what you have in the black community right now is a, an enormous amount of distrust by police. And, you know, that's how the Karen Nazario incident also comes into play here. And, and so they pull this young man, uh, Mr. Wright, out of his vehicle. And I'm not sure if they're going to cuff him or they're going to arrest him. Like I said, he has some kind of outstanding warrant. And he decides to try and flee, it would appear, and then to get back in his car. There wasn't much of a struggle. And he goes to get in his car, and two officers are trying to pull him out. And then there's the female officer who draws her weapon and claims that she's going to tase him. We want to, we were supposed to believe that she didn't know she had her firearm. She didn't know that she had her pistol in her hand, thought it was a taser, but threatens to tase him and then ends up squeezing the trigger and shooting him. And, you know, at that point in time, the police sort of back off and he speeds off. I don't know how far he got, a half a mile, a quarter mile before he dies at the wheel of the car. And, you know, this this case is, is, is just so disturbing on so many levels, right? I mean, even if it was an accident, how does this accident take place? You know, I don't know whether in this particular officer wore her sidearm on one side and the taser on the other. I don't know how much differently they feel. Certainly there's got to be a weight difference. A taser is made of plastic. A friend of mine, who you all know, I was talking to Fred the other day, and shout out to Fred. He told me he's listening to uh, my my solo podcast. Appreciate that. And, you know, he had mentioned, you know, this is something that could happen when you have tasers that are made with pistol grips and made to feel like guns. Like there's other ways that you could design a taser that it doesn't feel like a gun. And in the last uh, 10 or 20 years or whatever it's been, there have been 10 cases or so, when I looked it up, of people that have been shot by a gun and the officer uh, has blamed it on incorrectly using his revolver instead of the taser. Uh, One case in 2009 got quite a bit of uh, notoriety. It was in California. He ended up getting convicted of manslaughter and, and got two years in prison. I, I don't know if that's the right amount or not. Uh, you know, if this female officer really did pull her sidearm by accident instead of her taser, what is justice? You know, I don't know what the rules and the laws are in, in Minnesota about things like involuntary manslaughter or negligent um, death. You know, should she go to prison for her entire life? I'm sure her the, the the family of Mr. Wright kind of feels that way. 
and and so justice in this case i think is difficult but but here's the problem with it the problem is again it was what i see in the videos excessive use of force right sure he wants to get back into his car and flee and we know the reason he wants to do that is because he has a great distrust for the police and feels like his own personal safety is at risk, right? They get him on the ground. They put, you know, their knee on his neck and wait for whatever to show up, I, I guess, un, until he passes out and dies. There's that distrust that happens. But you have three police officers there and you have a 20-year-old young man. I, I just find it difficult to believe that they can't detain him. And, you know, just in the videos that I've seen, he doesn't seem to be, you know, a Hulk Hogan kind of person, right? And they should be able to control the situation. And when I see this woman who was a 26-year veteran of the force pull her firearm, and she says it's her taser, that also says to me that there's some kind of lack of training here. Like, like is she that caught up in the moment? Is 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 her excitement so off the charts that she doesn't know what she's holding in her hand? And, and in that case, it, it it sort of you know tells you to you know suspend belief with what what you're seeing and hearing. But at the same time, I I kind of want to agree with her that I think she might have accidentally pulled it. So then, if she did accidentally pull the gun instead of the taser, there is a training problem there. And that training was not just about what to do, but it's also how to act, right? She's not de-escalating the situation. She's escalating the situation. That's, to me, one of the big things that have to happen in policing today is police, no matter who they are in front of, okay, especially someone that is unarmed, particularly if they are unarmed, they have to start to first try and drive de-escalation. And I think that's what they're taught, kind of like what you're taught in school in a book, but I don't know what's really what they're taught out in the field. And, um, you know, so I, I don't know, we don't know really kind of what was really in her head. And, and then how much of her fear, call it, right? Whatever she was so excited about that she didn't know she had her firearm in her hand, how much of that was on a subconscious level, right? You, you, oh, this is a young black man, and he might be reaching for a gun in his car, and you know I, I, he's trying to flee, and this has never happened to me. Or, you know, how much is just that this is the way that she is, and she loves to get jacked up and start, uh, you know, escalating, and 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 maybe that's where her history um, will tell us something about the kind of police person that she was. But with with three cops on the scene it would seem to me that they would have been able to handle the situation a lot better. But they chose not to for various reasons. And um, I think one of those reasons is the fear that police have of the black community and young black males in particular. And I don't know whether in this situation, it's a subconscious kind of racism that is is harbored and that is harbored in many people, right? A prejudice and, and a fear um, that then becomes uncontrollable or is it more of an outward racism 
and you know that these people truly these police officers truly believe that black lives don't matter i mean that's kind of what i see in the chauvin case right that you know he has complete disregard for the uh, pain and angst and anxiety and ultimately the death of george floyd he could care less about what he's doing to George Floyd, he sees him as subhuman. And he probably fears him on some level, which is uh, why it got to the point that it did. And now he gets him on the ground. He has him in complete control. He no longer fears him. But he's also thinking, I don't really care uh, about this thing that I have underneath my knee. I, I don't feel as though I'm doing anything to a, a fellow human so the, the, the psyche here is the part that we really don't know much about, but the incidents are, are what they are. And then this week, another incident hit the news. And this one, again, it bothers me on several levels. And, and that is this Karen Nazario, a serviceman, was pulled over in Virginia back in December which is a really key point that I think people are missing on this story, but I'll get to that in a second. He gets pulled over in December, and uh, Karen Nazario is uh, a Black Latino man, and the officers that pull him over immediately escalate the situation. They turn on their flashers. He's on a dark Virginia road. He's not going to pull over into the dark uh, with the police behind him for which what he has said, the very reasons that we're talking about today. So he pulls uh, another two miles or so up to the next gas station. Now, I've done this similar thing once in California where the police put their lights on and I probably only went another, I don't know, maybe half mile and I pulled into the hotel that I was staying in. And then they asked me, why didn't you pull over as soon as you, uh, as soon as the lights came on? And I said, well, I knew my hotel was just up a ways and I thought it'd be safer to pull in there. And they didn't really like that answer, but in the end, nothing happened. They didn't approach my car with guns drawn because I had decided to continue driving before uh, pulling over. But these officers talked about in the car how this is now becoming a more dangerous situation, I guess because he didn't pull over right away. And the reason they pulled him over is because he couldn't see his tabs, which was a new license, which is the sticker that you put in the back of the window until you get your plate, blah, blah, blah. And you can see in the video just how jacked the police are right out of the gate, right out of the squad car. I mean, they're approaching them with guns drawn. And that is just insanity to me. Like I've been pulled over, I don't know how many times in my life, a bunch in, in, in the teens and 20s, and, and, and no one ever approached me with a gun out of their holster. I don't even know if they've ever put their gun, their hand on their gun in the holster. Like, it, it, it's, just, it's just so far, it's such an extreme reaction. There's a callousness to it, right? Like, I, I guess... You know, they don't care if the if the weapon discharges or not. They're ready to kill somebody. And 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 that's what people mean by changing policing. That's really kind of what they're they're talking about is is how do we change policing so that isn't the uh kind of the de facto SOP, if you will, when 
police fear for their lives, air quotes. And, you know, that also kind of drives me crazy. You just can't say you fear for your life. There has to be a standard for that. And for police, you took the job and inherently you're going to fear for your life in some time, in in certain cases. And that fear for your life, in my opinion, should never trump the idea that you might injure or kill an innocent person or a person that doesn't deserve that level of punishment on the street, right? Prosecutor, judge, jury, executioner, all in one. So, you know, that has to be so rare. And and to a certain extent, it is rare, but it's not rare enough. And the statistics kind of bear out that it's more prevalent in, in Black communities. And, and so when, when you start by pulling your weapon, you, you're already kind of going down that judge, jury, executioner kind of line, right? You're, you, you're already taking these giant steps towards being all of those. I mean, it's only just, what, one flinch of an index finger away uh, from, from, doing, from, from being all of those. Really bothersome that you watch this play out and that's what the police do. And then he's like, I'm not getting out of the car for a traffic stop. And then they want to escalate it even further. And, you know, now you're not complying. And then he pepper sprays him and then they drag him out and they handcuff him. You know, he, he's ultimately not charged with anything. There's also, and I don't know a lot about this aspect of the story, but in the police cam footage, there's some dialogue about he's kind of saying, you're not going to report this abuse or this excessive force because we're going to tarnish you and it's going to hurt your service record. And there's, there's, there's kind of a little bit of back and forth conversation between Nazario and the officer about this. And there's, there's kind of a threat and kind of a quid pro quo and, and kind of a, an extortion kind of thing in there. It, 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 it's kind of weird. Like Nazario tells him, well, I am definitely going to tell my superiors about this. So I'm not worried about you telling them about it. And because there's going to be some level of criminality to that as well, or at least some sort of disciplinary action to the officer who did end up getting fired to even suggest that, right? That these things just can't go unpunished. Or if we don't have laws to cover these things, obviously we need stronger laws to do it. Because Gutierrez, as the officer, he knew, he knew what he was doing was wrong. Otherwise, he wouldn't have said, I don't want you speaking about this. And if you do, I'm going to screw up your service record. And at another point in time, uh, early, I think, in the stop, he tells him, don't think being a veteran is going to help you in this situation. Which, you know, I'll, hey, make a really crazy leap here and say, I'll bet you Gutierrez is a Trumpster, right? Woo, okay. And so, you know, I thought we were all about supporting our servicemen. And, you know, when you support somebody, oftentimes that means you're giving them the benefit of the doubt, right? You support them because they're honorable people. And I'm not saying that all service people are honorable, but that's what the whole idea of supporting your servicemen, supporting your first responders, right? Supporting your firemen. You you expect them to be honorable 
because of the professions they took. And now in the police world, you have all this kind of unraveling. And now it's really kind of hard to say or how honorable police are. I mean, what one of the things that these three cases bring up is just how many bad apples are there in policing. And, you know, I, I used to want to believe that it was a small percent of the bad apples were making the rest of the police uh, look bad. I'm just not sure that's the case anymore. I, I, I really kind of believe that that percent of bad police, and, and here's what I mean by bad police. Joe Gidiars had a partner. His name was Daniel Crocker. And almost said Davy Crockett. And this case happened in December. Gutierrez wasn't fired until the body cam was released. What happened between December and April? What happened between December and April on this case? Gutierrez filed suit, I think, or I don't know exactly when he filed suit, but people knew about this. People had seen the body cam. Daniel Crocker was there. There, there had to be a number of people involved on the police side that did nothing. And it doesn't spark any action until the body cam comes out. Videoing police work has become sort of the only means that society has in order to make sure that police are somewhat held accountable for their actions. Think about all of the times that there is the Karen Nazario traffic stop that isn't or wasn't put on camera, and then what happens? And, and that's the part that bothers me about how prevalent this is. How many bad apples are there? You know, on, on previous podcasts, I've, I, I know I've talked about the, the code of silence that police have. And if you're part of that code of silence, then you're a bad apple. At least in those instances, at least you shouldn't be doing that job. Go do something where you can be more honorable. Every one of us has a mixed bag, right? We do good things for people. We do bad things against people. We try and be more good than bad. That's what we try and do. Police have an additional duty to try and be more good than bad because of the power that they, they hold on the street. And, and so that has to be a higher bar. So, I, you know, Joe Gutierrez might be a terrific guy, right? He might have, you know, wonderful kids and his neighbors love him and, you know, whatever, even despite the fact that he's probably a Trumpster, right? <laughs> but he's in the wrong p profession if this is the way he behaves. You know, I, I don't know what the answer to that is. Either we dramatically change how policing is done, which I think is what the defund police movement is all about. Or we dramatically change how the hiring process goes and who we hire. And maybe if we hire different people to be police officers, we get a different outcome in policing. And we don't have to. The policies are probably all in place there. So like community policing where, you know, they're not carrying guns and they're not out looking for arrests, but they're out there trying to help people uh, as kind of your patrol right? Not that we don't need people that can handle serious situations, but on your everyday patrol, maybe those people have to be paid better, be better educated, have some higher degree of integrity about them than, you know, just, just hiring someone because they have, say, military background. 
and I know I'm, I'm casting all kinds of, you know, generalities and aspersions here against all groups of people, but I'm just using them as examples. I, I don't know kind of what it's going to take to change policing in this country. Those were two ideas that I had. Either, either the tactics have to change or the people have to change. Maybe that also starts with the, you know, upper echelons within the departments, right? Your police chiefs. And one area that I think really needs to be addressed are police unions. Police unions will stand by their bad cops till the bitter end. And that also has to stop. And I would love to hear stories by officers or people that are affiliated with the departments that say, no, that's not always the case. And the union will come down on somebody that is uh, a bad apple. But I don't, I don't think it, it happens very often. And there's also quite a bit of difference between the, well, I used to believe, because now when I see what's happening in Minnesota, which is a fairly progressive city, right? But I used to believe there was kind of that difference between the rural America police and your sheriff departments who have a tremendous amount of county uh, power and influence. And then, you know, your cops walking the beats in your urban areas and to a certain extent in your suburbs. You know, they see so many different kinds of situations and are exposed to such diversity in those neighborhoods that I always kind of felt like they lean a little bit more progressive and maybe that systemic racism doesn't leak through like it does in more rural parts of the country and more rural parts of our own states. I, I don't know, but it's it's hard to say when you see the George Floyd and the uh, Duante Wright incidents and, and say, okay, especially when they're both in, in Minneapolis. And we know, you know, certain cities have, uh, you know, some real reputations of, of having extremely um, abusive police forces in the black neighborhoods of those big cities. So I used to believe it was, you know, m more rural because one of the things where I want to tie this all together is what are these what do these three incidents have in common? And it is that in all three cases, leading up to the eventual outcome, the officers feared for their lives on some level, right? And now the George Floyd case is a little bit different, but how it got to that point, how how Chauvin got to the position of holding him down while he was handcuffed, clearly not a threat. Now they want to make it seem like he was a possible threat, but let's use some common sense and logic, okay? He was handcuffed. He was cooperating. He didn't do anything irrational up until then. So it's it's really, it, it stretches the bounds of plausibility, okay? I hate to say that there, Mr. Defense Attorney to think that he was going to become violent and try and harm any of the officers on the scene. Oh, very quickly, on the scene, the other thing the defense wants to play up is that it wasn't safe to try and move George Floyd because the scene had become unstable and that it could have been dangerous. And the scene was local people that were there filming the police with their cell phones. And most of them were black. And that's the fear part. That's where the defense is saying that when you have a group of black people 
around an officer, now this is a dangerous situation. It's this absolutely racist notion that black people are dangerous. Forget about the situation. That is the world that they are trying to live in. Black people are dangerous. Add to the fact that they might have a gun because America loves their guns. Add to the fact that they might have a gun. Now you have the use of deadly force being appropriate in the eyes of many police. And I can go back to a conversation that I had with sort of an ex-friend officer, and that was his whole situation, that you don't know when you're walking into a deadly situation. You don't know when you're walking into a deadly scenario, and that guy might have a gun. And it's hard to believe that anyone thought that George Floyd was going to be dangerous. But the officers that were following Karen Nazario, when they approach his, his, his car immediately with their guns drawn, they're doing so because they think he might have a gun. When Duante Wright is trying to get back into his car, which forces the officer to pull her weapon, taser or otherwise, they're doing that because they believe that he might have a gun in the car and might shoot one of them. I, otherwise, I can't, like, you, you just you just can't go shooting people because they want to flee. I mean, if, if they're a fleeing murder suspect that just, you know, stabbed a bunch of people in the mall and they're fleeing, sure, right? But that guy usually doesn't even get shot. That guy gets caught, right? Fleeing someone, fleeing an officer is not an excuse for an officer to shoot that person. It, it, it's just not, you know? The, there, there was the case in uh, Atlanta. Right at the burger, the Wendy's parking lot. I forget his name, and he was fleeing, and the officer shot him in the back. It's 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 non excuse when you have the combination of either deep seated racism or blatant racism, fear of the black community, which is part of that racism, combined with the proliferation of guns in the United States. That's why you have cops fearing for their lives. This is a hand-in-hand problem. Cops in Germany and France, they don't, they're not thinking they're going to get shot on a traffic stop. Even if they harbor some level of racism towards whoever they're pulling over, they're pulling over because they're, you know, racially profiling, let's say, okay? But they're not under the, uh, the fantastical notion, I guess you could say, that that person has a gun and, and is, is going to blow them away, so they're going to get the jump on them. But that's the way police have to act today in America, at least in their minds, because they think everyone has a gun. And when we know that there's probably about 300 million guns in the U.S., although they are more concentrated into, you know, fewer homes, right? There's, you know, 100 million homes in the U.S., and not everybody has three guns. Whatever the number is, this is a gun problem as much as it is a systemic racism and policing problem because police think everybody could have a gun and police don't want to get shot. Now, part of me says you signed up to be a police officer knowing that there are 200 million guns out there. You can't be shooting people because you think they have a gun. And that's a conversation that I would like, I would welcome with any officer or any other expert you know, on this topic. Ask the question, do you think you have the right to shoot somebody because you think they have a gun? In my mind, the answer is no. Before you make the leap from patrolman to executioner, you have to be certain.
you can't you can't speculate. You can't operate under the guise of fear and unknown. You can't operate under the idea of generalities or anecdotal perceptions, right? Because the, the statistics don't bear it out, right? But you're going to operate under the idea of you know that that person is dangerous. And, uh, you know, that's, of course, strictly anecdotal. I don't know today with, you know, the general police force that we have out there, how they would answer that question. I I understand that their job is to protect and serve and then go home to their families. But I don't know that protect and serve means you do whatever you have to to make sure you go home, even if it means killing innocent people. I, I I, I, I just don't think it goes that far. Maybe my expectations of uh, policing is is too high, but I can tell you this: if we and I don't know, you can separate the two because I'm I'm, I'm linking them th- together very very closely. But if we didn't have the proliferation of guns in the U.S., would we have the same level of systemic racism? I'm guessing not. You might. You know, we can look at other countries. And we can see what's going on there. Canada is a very diverse country. They don't have a gun problem, really, in Canada. Uh, I'm sure that there are police abuses that happen, but they don't escalate to the way that ours do. But that's not to say that their police do not racially profile or use uh, stereotypes uh, when conducting their police business, which are at the heart, or I should say at the surface, of what really is the heart of racism, those stereotypes and generalities. And, and so, you know, I, I think that they are linked in America, and I don't think we really can address one without addressing the other. And I think that's why the, the problems that we have in America are so, so complicated, right? Because all of these things then have their their own connections to all of the other institutions that we have, right? Whether it's economic, you know, job opportunities, education, all of those other factors that that, that come into play that create or at least do not help reduce the amount of racism that we have. Throw 300 million guns on top of that pile and this is what you get. All right. Well, I've gone on for a while. Um, the beer is pretty good, but I'm going to probably lean not for me on this. It it kind of has a, a bit of a skunky aftertaste for me. Uh, that still, you know, won't keep me from going back to uh, Keweenaw Brewing Company because generally I like their beers, but not everything can be for everybody. Real quick, I did want to talk a little bit about something I got going on at the brewery this weekend, but it's not a plug but kind of is, but it's been fun. I've been, we're we're doing a a special beer release this weekend called the Hazy Mountain Hop, which is a play off of the Led Zeppelin song, Misty Mountain Hop. And it just so happens that that album, one of the greatest rock and roll albums of all time, came out in 1971. So we've got the 50th anniversary of Led Zeppelin 4 or Zoso or whatever you want to call it. And so part of our rock and roll weekend with this special beer release, the Hazy Mountain Hop, I thought I'd do a 
little what I'm calling classic rock jam trivia. And is that questions per se about classic rock, like you might think of in traditional trivia. It's I'm taking a 15 to 25 second segment of some of our greatest classic rock songs of all time, just the instrument instrumental segment. And uh, the participants have to guess what that song is. And then they get extra bonus points if they know the album, the release date. And it's really been kind of a lot of fun as I put this thing together, um, listening to a whole bunch of classic rock songs and determining whether or not it's too easy or too hard or just right for somebody to identify that song just based on 20 seconds of listening to, you know, maybe the guitar solo. Kind of think about that yourself. So I had Fred come over last night, guinea pig, and uh, I knew he would be very good, and he was. Um, and he nailed almost every song I, th- I think that I played, um, and there was many that I didn't have to. Uh, it, it did kind of, at least from my one anecdotal test that I did, it did come out that identifying the album was not as easy, which I thought that would be a little easier to do because I think I know my discography on certain bands better than others, but eh, maybe not. And then everything else after that was sort of a crapshoot. But yeah, it was a lot of fun. We're going to give it a go uh, this weekend at the brewery to see how many people can identify those classic rock hits just by that 15 to 20 seconds that I'll play. So next time you're listening to one of those great rock songs, see if you can't just, you know, mentally in your uh, mentally in your mind, how's that? Mentally in your mind, just carve out that that middle instrumental and say, oh, yeah, I would know this anytime, anywhere. Maybe you do, maybe you do. Anyway, so that's all I got today on kind of what's happening in the blotto world outside of politics. And I'll let you know how it goes. So next time I record, uh, we'll be after that and was it difficult or was it easy hey and if you want to reach out to potoms up with a suggestion on a song that you think ought to be included uh do it uh asap because i you know we're gonna have the trivia here in saturday the 17th so hopefully i get this out on the airs (laughs) on the airways before then all right been a terrific conversation with myself and as always, drink up, listen up, and pot them some. Politics, some culture and craft beer. Politics, and that is why you're here. Politics, I don't